Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice, and it's good to be back. We're still in January. We're still in the new year. We're recording this a little early. I am really excited today. I get to talk to Brie Burning. Her pronouns are she or they. They're the International Leather Person of the Year, but they've been holding the title since 2020, all through the pandemic. Uh, They're very involved in the leather community. They're involved in teaching and outreach and all sorts of really cool stuff, and I'm excited to have them on the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the lovely and warm introduction. I'm really excited to spend some time with you. Let's start by talking about what leather is to you. Mm, the infamous question I feel like many people ask around what is leather? Leather for me is a lifestyle. It's about finding home for me, community. And specifically, though, leather is not just something that we wear as a shield and as something that we can recognize each other with, whether we're, you know, across a hall, in a room, at a conference together, or on a Zoom call. It is about finding one another through our history and rebuilding from there. That leather is really about the wearer because it might be different for you, for me, and it's something that's so personal. It's also the way that I like to have sex. It's something about this connection, not through just kink, but the actual values and ways that I live my life. Um, It's also something that made me feel like I found myself again. And it's hot. It's also that for me. It's also hot. When did you discover love? Ooh. So when I was 18, I came into the local San Francisco Bay Area community Uh, just legal, finally able to explore. And I found actually a kink community local at the, uh, at the time dungeon, the SF Citadel. It was a mixture of kink and all different kinds of play, but there were a lot of leather folk there as well, teaching classes. And one of the owners was very involved in leather. I was very attracted to a lot of the leather folk, what they were doing, whether that was contests or you know, supporting their different local communities and bringing people together. It wasn't just one event or thing that was going on, but how could we support one another and what we were doing? And I just found that to be incredibly attractive and curious because I grew up really, really religious. And for me, that was a very conservative experience. And so to see people living very out loud, which is a privilege to do was healing for me. And so it was my very first dominant that actually introduced me to leather in a deeper way from just viewing it around me, but actually stepping into it myself and getting to learn from a lot of people of different generations. You bring up growing up in a conservative religious household. That's probably 70% of the guests I have on this show. Like, like it's a thing. And there's a reason so many of us are attracted to BDSM and leather. So how did your relationship with your own identity change as you discovered the leather community? Oh, so I knew that I was different. I did not have the language at the time, but I knew at the age of 11 that something was very, very different for me. Um, My mother is actually really open. So my parents divorced before I was even two years old. And my father is the one who's super religious um, and actually is a pastor. So I'm a, I'm a, PK or a pastor's kid as well, which I know is also a thing many of us um, have in common. 
And I grew up with a lot of shame in this body that was always different anyway, like being a fat bodied human. I have been since I was very, very young and trying to find like what felt good for me in my body. I also knew I was queer at a super young age, but all of those things went against my religion and the prescribed notion of what I was supposed to be, who I was supposed to be. Unfortunately, I was actually outed at 17, very close before I turned 18, because I was using an online uh, community called Second Life. And I met leather and kinky folk on Second Life who were like, you don't have to be alone. There's actually real people out here. And I had been reading erotica since a super young age as an outlet where my mother was like, hey, clearly you're very curious about sex and people and bodies. Here's a healthy way for you to have a place to go. Read these books like Laurel K. Hamilton, Anne Rice books, right? Like some of those things that, you know, tap into that fantasy and that fun, but that there is a real aspect to those things if you want it to be through consensual relationships. So when I was outed, it was really painful. Um, I lost that whole community uh, for me with my father, my siblings, and everything on that side. But it was also really freeing because then I actually got to go, well, there isn't anything holding me back now that I'm 18. I can explore if I want to. I don't have to be afraid of what will happen if they find out because they already did. And so it was like, rediscovering everything again as a human being. What did I want? Who was I? And not having all of those things stop me. I still had a lot of shame. And yeah, still a lot of fear because that's 18 years of my life in that. But it was also like, I get to choose and I have autonomy over myself to explore and see what I do and don't like. And leather and kink was that doorway with people who are still religious that are in kink and leather and me getting to learn what that's like for them while also still healing my own religious trauma that I'm going through still today at 32 years old. It's kind of that, I feel like forever balance of life and learning, but it did open up a lot of healing pathways for me and doors to just experience the world and people. And I want to delve into that, but for some of my listeners who are younger or didn't do the whole online thing early on, talk about Second Life, because you were actually the first guest to mention that, although for lots of people, it was a huge part of identity. So what's Second Life? Yeah, so Second Life is a virtual community, virtual reality, where you can create your avatar. Some people might know like IMVU is similar, where you create an avatar to be however you want to look in any way. (laughs) And there's lots of different communities there. So it's people that join online, It used to be free. I don't know what that looks like anymore, but you would join up free, but you could add real money and all of those things into it to buy fun outfits or things for your character. But the most part, you could explore a music scene. So maybe you were really into house music and you wanted to be a DJ in this virtual space. You could. You could also be a promoter on there. Um, I happened to find the kinky uh, queer and leather communities in there. And you could play all different kinds of roles with very real people or have conversations. I know that the Carter Carter Johnson Library, they actually have a space in Second Life as well so that people can learn about leather and have access to it because not everyone can go to these events. Maybe you can't be out, but there is a very real virtual place and that is still being used today. At the time, I was curious. I was also really it felt really safe to me to have a place to talk about things that I didn't feel like anyone else was going to provide for me, especially when I had to be really careful with talking about those things and my identity. Unfortunately, I wasn't as aware of like safety online things that you should be doing, especially now in these online real worlds that we connect. I wish I would have had more information. It's how I got outed, but I still wouldn't take it away for anything. Second Life was really fun to connect with other people, to have this avatar, have fun. Um, I also have um, different mobility issues and things. And it's a way that you can do things that maybe your physical body can't do as well, which was really cool. So was your avatar fat? Yes. That's awesome. I know. I was really nervous. I don't think... It was pushing like, 
I don't feel like I was as true, but it was fat, but not, I think, as fat body as I, I am um, in real life. And so I still balanced some of those issues that I had around shame around my body because a lot of people wanted you to be like really, really a specific look, even in an avatar, which was wild to me. But I was like, no, I'm I'm a fat person. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I am fat. So... I love that because, yeah, when a lot of people do create online avatars and online personas, it's more crafted to fit the mainstream view of beauty. So to even be embracing that when you're young and exploring is awesome. So you you just, you come to the the Bay Area, you discover leather. You you talk about how it is incorporated into your healing journey. What parts of leather were healing? Mm. Leather was healing for me, I think on a few fronts, it allowed me to realize that there's such a history that's so deep of people coming through a lot of adversity, like the difficult terrains of being queer, specifically in men's community, but also the story that isn't told about anybody else who doesn't identify as male. And that story isn't told as much, I feel like, through leather, but I was surrounded by it. Because my dominant was a leather woman, she was able to share with me what that was like amongst being with our other siblings that, you know, really did do a lot of hard work in these areas, but that there was chosen family that you could actually be part of and heal through any familial trauma that you might have, rebuilding in community, whether that's a leather family that you might create with other people, like-minded, different-minded, different perspectives. It also made me realize that we were living through something similar because leather can be very different for all of us. And you have to still align just like you might ask, like, what does polyamory mean to you? Because we do it differently. You might do that same thing with leather and finding people with the same similar values of life but also different perspectives and different lived experiences as your support network, as your mentorship. It made me feel like I could still be connected to community in a way that wasn't from this religious form for me, but that I could still have where we do amazing things for community, not just in leather, but maybe we're raising funds for children. Maybe we're raising funds for AIDS epidemic, right? Like, all of these different pieces or restoring our own history because our books and our words get lost throughout time. It was meaningful to me because I always care about doing stuff for others as well as myself in the process and learning what is there. It felt like a new beginning for me and still connective as it felt really lonely at first to have this community I had before, but being who I truly was and it being shown to them as a no-no and a shunning to then be fully accepted in all of my wild, magical differences and to still be welcomed in those spaces and said, like, you are enough. We love who you are. Um, it also created a lot of accountability, I feel like, as a human. You know, you talk about integrity, respect, accountability in these things. But when somebody really comes up to you in your own family that you've chosen and is like, hey, I'm really concerned, Brie, with the way that you have been acting or these things are really concerning to me. It is hard to handle, to deal with, but it's also healing in this way of I'm not saying you're a bad person because you're messing up here, but I am saying that your own values, you're not living up to them. And we're here to support you in that. And then I have the same thing with them. It was also healing to be in this fat body and this disabled body that could do so many things and break a lot of the stereotypes. Walking in, moving in through a dungeon space and feeling hot. And if I wasn't your flavor, I wasn't your flavor. And seeing other people do that as kind of role models to me, just living in their bodies, playing in their bodies, uh, being in a boot black stand. It, it is something so healing for me because I feel like society in so many ways, in so many areas, and yes, and kink and leather too, um, 
sometimes make you feel like you can't be anything in a fat body or in a disabled body or neurodivergent or whatever you are that society says isn't okay. It felt so healing to just be able to be there and be in space. And also, I hope to just being in a space that my body would also let other people know that they're welcome there and that others will do the same for each other as they go through because... I saw the Yelp reviews of my local dungeon, and a lot of people did have reviews on people's bodies that they didn't even know, talking about cellulite or it doesn't look like a porn. And it made me laugh because that's what I love. I love that it's real, and I really hope for more porn uh, and more sex work to be showing of real people's bodies because we're all here in different ways and different shapes. So that was really healing, too. Do you remember the first time you felt you were very desirable in your body as it is? Mm. I think it was maybe six months into my public journey. So I came in at 18. So maybe a, a six months into that time frame. That's when my Donna and I officially like started um, to, <laughs> to have our service collared relationship and service to, to, actual dungeon there as well and we had this scene where she was using her single tails on me and it's like the world faded away she loves putting on a show that was always her but she was always like an energy player and into it and i just felt like she wanted to lovingly devour me and every sting of the whip and every moment just felt like i felt in my body I felt like I could feel everything running through me and that it was wonderful. And I didn't feel any shame. I didn't feel any need to be for anybody else but to dance for her <laughs> with the pain and the fun. Yeah. I forgot about that for a little bit. But that, I think, was the very first time I felt really wanted in my body. And coming out of that scene and that moment, how did it change how you move forward in your own body i think it was really painful actually the drop after was really hard because i wasn't used to feeling that way in my body i wasn't used to feeling like it could feel that good and not have shame toward it uh so it took me quite some time actually the next couple of years through it because different dominance you know i had that relationship with her but i also desired a different dominant style in my life as well that was more romantic and it felt like a lot of the people around me that had those different power exchange relationships that also included romance didn't like larger bodied people didn't like my fat body so it was good for play and it was good for sex but it wasn't ever good for a different type of relationship um that included those things that i wanted and so it, it was confusing to me that I could connect on all these levels with somebody, but then they didn't want that with me or to be seen with me outside of a dungeon. And that was really, really hard through early 20s to feel like I mattered beyond that. Even though, you know, my first dominant would tell me how incredible I was and to not let anybody put me in those places, but it still was very that much that way with things like FetLife as a website and the kinky and popular days, the photos you would never see somebody's body like mine. Um, and it was really hard of like, even in this space, it's that same standard how do I connect these pieces for myself and move through it? So I'd have little bouts of moments that were really special and wonderful, but also still really confronted with a lot of people not wanting to actually date me, not actually wanting to have those relationships, just the kinky and sexual ones. What allowed you to build up the confidence and get rid of enough shame to really pursue the types of relationships you want. I mean, my therapist is amazing. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, my support network of having a therapist really talk about what self-worth is. Um, Cause I do, I really struggle with the feeling of worthiness in general But being around other fat-bodied people who 
were not perfect, also struggled in their feelings, but went and did things anyway. Um, finding other leather makers and creators of kink gear, leather gear that actually would make stuff for your body. Finding ways that made me feel good, whether that was through, honestly, some photo shoots to see myself in somebody's eye and perspective. We also ran and held and hosted a party at the Citadel called Luscious, which was a body positive, I can't words, a body positive event that was a play party specifically focused. It was open to everyone with the emphasis of body positivity. And I know that that term has also grown and changed since then um, and also has been taken over in other realms to actually dismiss fat bodies. But at the time, that was the language we were using to create space in a dungeon that was like, no, this is what you're here for, to support and like raise up and be excited about. And so also having events like that, that I used to just attend and then eventually was part of staff for, was incredible because you got all kinds of bodies in the space being hot and sexy and wonderful and connecting with other people. And it wasn't actually like a fetishization of it either which is another issue that comes along as well as not seeing the person behind the body and only the body for being fat, uh, which is not for me, my jam. So it, it created a lot of room for people to really explore and show themselves. I think through moments like that and showing up, even when it felt really hard to do, because I would actually get joy from seeing other people, joy and almost this reassurance that we're all in this together and look we all can be our magical hot selves so i can too and if i can be willing to be vulnerable and share those places other people also bring that with them and start to share those pieces and together we can go through it i think a lot of that created that for me it has been a challenge as my body has grown even larger throughout the years where i have to remind myself once again i'm I'm no less worthy. I'm no less hot. Uh, this is my body and it is ever changing and evolving. And to be kind to myself and to decolonize it. I mean, a lot of fat phobia comes from colonization. So how do I also undo those pieces and the narrative that I speak to myself in and be kind to myself and loving is an everyday situation and reminding myself I'm not going to be that hundred percent all the time and feel fearless no there's there's days that are hard too when the world tells you every single day that you shouldn't exist in that body so it is a it is a constant work and showing up where i can and also getting the love and support from other people i can't do this alone you've talked about also drawing on support from the history and connecting with the history of the queer community and the leather community you brought up the carter johnson library so who have been your paperback mentors? Mm, my paperback mentor. So my very first dominant, August Knight, uh, is definitely one of them for me. She brought a lot of local San Francisco history for me, I would say specifically, and would share with, like, here's these resources. Go to the Exiles group, um, which is anyone who's non-male identified, uh, very open, but also structured in a way that I could be there, unlike other groups that don't allow a non-binary person like me to be in. The SF Girls of Leather, uh, Angel Garfold, was one of the people who also provided a lot to me, um, and still is. She's someone I call my big sis in our uh, SF Girls of Leather group. Tomo, he has been absolutely incredible. He runs South Plains Leather Fest now. Um, he also has Northwest Leather Celebration family producer, has also run uh, International Ms. Leather uh, contest and producing along with Miss Rhonda. Uh, Miss Rhonda is someone who she just listens and her dominance is so incredible to watch. Providing the history that is there and also the struggles it is to be a woman who is a dominant in leather, a master in leather, and these conversations where people don't consider her to be there. 
I laugh about this because we're closer in age and things like that. But Moxie Minion, she is my boot black. She is the Northwest uh, boot black. And she has been somebody who, oh gosh, she loves history. She's that person who will always bring me a new tidbit that I didn't know and that she's been digging into and getting nerdy about. And I know she gets into her TikTok (laughs) conversations with people as well around leather history. And she also brings, though, what it's like to be a boot black and sharing those perspectives with me. The history of what that looks like of taking care of leather I'm a baby boot black, so I know how to do a little bit, but nothing like many of our boot blacks who study and do all of this work together. Vi Johnson or Mama Vi or Grandma Vi, depending on who you are and how you're connected with her. Though I haven't gotten to have as much in-person relationship, going to any of her online conversations or when we do get a moment together to learn from her and the experiences of her and her wife, like those things have been There's nothing like it when you have an elder in community who is still showing up, sharing and pouring heart out and raising up the next generation, not hoarding power. I think that is incredible. And to hold all of these different pieces of history and I'm not just talking. I think sometimes when we talk about history, we think about these big institutions of education and a lot of that is through a wall a barrier that we actually can't access. But the Carter Johnson Library is something that we can access, something that is created on purpose for access so we don't lose these pieces. Each and every one of us are part of this history. And so whether you wrote a blog post or you wrote a short story or, you know, autobiography about your kinky leather experience, it's there. And they want more of that. And to just be in, sometimes she'll do a slave circle or a little space and things like that. It's everything to just soak it up and to be in those spaces to learn. There's a lot of people along my path, but those are the ones that come up to the forefront for me. That's wonderful. And I'm just going to put a plug in. Moxie Minion will be on the show next week for our listeners. So... (laughs) <laughs> you want to find a little bit more about her? Come back next week. Uh, <laughs> Got to plug the show when I can. Love it. Um, <laughs> so you are international leather person of, of multiple years, actually. It would be the <laughs> year, but you served for multiple years. What is that? Explain that to our listeners. Yeah. So international person of leather is a title. If you don't know anything about the title system and leather, some people might describe it as a... Why did the word just leave my brain? A pageant. Now, it is a little bit different, but if you are thinking of a pageant, sometimes you have the look, right? And then you have the talent and those things. Those vary. It's not typically as much about that. Yes, you might have something called the leather um, like lifestyle. And what it is, it's about showing yourself of who you are as a leather person. Specifically, the person of leather title is all about sharing around the diversity of leather, our culture of diversity. And it's not based on your gender. It's not based on your age. It's not based on your phys- like anything physical, physicality of any of those things. It's you as a leather person. And so it's always about that. And you'll see it within our different um line is there's different regions for person of leather. We even now have states for person of leather. And these systems go into kind of step by step. So maybe if you want to run for a person of leather title, you might start at the state and then go into your region. Uh, For me, I went to the region, which is the Northwest. Uh, Person of leather was my very first title I ran for in 2019, which feels like forever ago, and uh, ran alongside three other contestants that are incredible people and got to have a contestant family, uh, meaning that we all ran together for the same contest. So there are different contests all around and have been for a very long time. When they first started, they were actually more of a way to have fun, especially along the AIDS epidemic, to show this kind of camaraderie, to have fun to celebrate one another in different ways. And yeah, sure, maybe you supported your local bar. 
maybe you, you know, looked really hot on a calendar, um, you raised some funds, but it depends on the region and what the title is. So personal leather is very different in some ways that it's focused on the culture of diversity and really living that and standing for that. And so you can be any kind of person of leather, whether you are a little like me um, or, I mean, I have a lot of identities, but one of those, um, or if you're a dominant, a submissive, a switch, a puppy player, a pet player in general, like whatever that is for you, it's whatever you're bringing to the, to the table. International person of leather is that next step. So I went and ran for the regional. I was um, judged by, I think it was seven judges. And then I uh, earned that title. And then going from there, that next step was to in, to do that year of fundraising and traveling and wonderful connection with so many people not only in my own region but i i tried really hard to connect with all of the regions to the best of my ability and then i also ran along with all of the other regions that were able to have a title holder and we ran together it was six of us that ran together as a title class for the international person of leather and that was originally held in las vegas and has changed hands as happens with different producers and times and through a pandemic. But I earned that in 2020 at the very end of January slash early February. And then the pandemic hit and I uh, have been the international person of leather from 2020 until my step aside in March in 2024 coming up here soon. What's been the so different title holders, you have to have a focus of your reign and what you want to promote and all that. What's been the focus of your your work for the last three years? It's been vulnerability. Um, showing up with vulnerability, however you are. So I also am a presenter. I love I love teaching panels and and actually discussion groups as well. So my big thing was also being a a teacher, not just a, a title holder, which depends on the person. I do believe it is a bit of a teaching title. It's a service title. So providing support and service to our community through vulnerability. I feel that a lot of times, no matter what community you're in, it's really easy to put on a persona, which I think we all do. I'm also neurodivergent and putting on this mask, especially through really difficult times and not showing the underbelly a real human I found it to be really painful to experience with other people. And I was like, well, what is it? What can I bring as a human? It was to bring that and to advocate for other people. So in 2020, I did, I think, 120 online events. Yeah, it was something like that, where I was hosting discussion groups for S-types, because that's mainly how I identify as an S-type. And I ran two different groups um, with some other leaders as well. I hosted different classes, some of the ones I was teaching and would adapt them to be on Zoom, which was really, really different and fun and new and learning altogether. Um, and then I also held a few different fundraisers, um, specifically looking at all, all that was going on in 2020, um, especially for Black Lives Matter um, and uh, sending over to the advocacy group specifically for BLM and also doing panels. So we would have different people come together and talk about their experiences because we saw a lot of the gaps that were happening when we didn't have connection in person. And we also saw a lot of the issues around barriers to access our community in general that we weren't seeing before. And keeping that through, I know it's shifted some, but we had so many groups that were accessible for people to be part of community in ways that they couldn't before. And so that was a big part of that and being vulnerable through those moments. And I mean, I stayed at home for most of that through, I think, 2022 for the most part. That was a really, really big thing for me to share within that and the difficulties of all of us experiencing different parts of a pandemic, as well as our own lives and how that individually hit us and community-wise, losing spaces losing people and coming through that of like this is hard i'm not okay how are you really and then what are the resources and support that we can provide one another through that 
I also got to host uh, alongside many people. I was just one of the staff that was uh, doing accessibility for a conference that was all online called Flame. And that was an incredible thing that uh, Master David and Bryn uh, created during the heat of that pandemic of like, we're not going to get to go to conferences. We're not going to get to gather together. What can we do? And so we had two years of that coming together and learning. I actually got to learn from an incredible person, Tuesday Niles, who actually runs her own American Sign Language Interpreters company. I know very little sign language, but I've been taking courses. And she taught me so much about different forms of accessibility. I already had a passion, but not in any way to all of the knowledge that she had and provided. So her and I co-led that grouping for that flame conference and creating accessibility, learning how to support our communities. And that's mainly been it. And through this last year, a lot of travel, a lot of judging panels and just being there to hear about all the differences that are changing in different regions, especially with the different things going on in our world, whether you're trans specifically, um, different bodily autonomy rights along with that. And traveling to these different places that aren't California and the privileges I have here. So how I can support them there when we're being together and learning and kind of working through a lot of really hard things. But being, I think vulnerability is the through line through each and every one of those for me. How to show up and really be there for one another and not try to, I don't know, put on the face of everything's okay all the time when it's not. And that's so critical because when you can let that out, other people feel a little more okay letting out their vulnerable sides. You talk a lot about accessibility, and most people, when they think of accessible spaces, think of physical accessibility, whether that be ramps or lifts or, or whatever for people who use mobility aids. You are neurodivergent or neurospicy, as some people would say. So let's talk about what is neurodivergence? How does it manifest for you? And then go into what you have to consider when you're doing accessibility work around that. Yeah. So accessibility is very, very much so a wider conversation, like you're saying, than just the physical spaces. But even within our physical spaces, it's looking at how close do you put your chairs together? Let's let's be honest. Are they always linked together? Can it be immovable? Does the room have to look and function in one way, like the classroom that you might be used to, that is actually very difficult for many people? Whether you have different aids for things, like I use like QR codes for certain things so people can have a reader on their materials for handouts and things like that. Um, I will print larger print, smaller print, also um, creating different like signs and things like that that create here's where you can find this information for whatever accessibility you needs for any device that you have i've also had where i make sure to mention in anything that i'm teaching or doing or holding a space for that there's closed captioning whether that's through a device on your phone i've started using microphones because not every place can provide you a sound system um, but it's one that I it's like on my hip or wherever I put it on my body and it's like you know the little mic that comes from your ear to your face to help one save my own voice um, because that it can be very difficult out throughout time but also to, to reach the back of the room somebody's hard of hearing if a group is able to provide American Sign Language can be extremely helpful um, but those were the conversations around also attendees who have visual impairment, are blind. If you hand someone a piece of paper, assuming what someone will need can be really harmful. I also, for minor spiciness, uh, I have ADHD, specifically inattentive ADHD. And being an AFAB person, it specifically is very different for me in many ways than I've experienced with other people who are don't have that specific makeup. And so I have been told to mask or find specific mm, systems to get me through things that make me feel like I don't actually need help. And so what I try to do for myself is learn how to advocate. Actually, I need this information. I'm going to need this in this way. What can you provide? And talking to different conferences, if you're wanting to present somewhere, 
having those conversations with them. If you're wanting to attend and they say we have accessibility, ask them what do they mean by that or sharing what you have. Because sometimes it is only like two things that you get to click on for what that means, but there's so much more there. My own mobility impairment, I need things that I can either lean on or sit on at some point. I also need to know if there's access, yes, to things like ramps and whatnot, or honestly, a map. I have dyscalculia. Uh, dyscalculia can hit people in a few different ways. For me, it is with math specifically, as well as directionality. I will almost always exit a building and be completely confident that my car is to the right. And every single time, it is not. It is to the left. And my partner laughs at me every single time. She's like, will you just trust me that I know where the car is? And after eight years, I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> she laughs, but every single time it's those pieces. So providing maps for people, location, where will those things be in descriptions of a class, uh, a panel or anything, a little layout of what that might look like. If you have any trigger warnings that you can provide ahead of time, reminding people that they can leave a space and that they won't be ashamed, like shamed for it or any of those things, those are actually accessibility as well because it's creating space and creating container that people can choose how to interact with or to disengage and not feel all of these other things that might come up for them. I also have CPTSD, which does change the format of the way that my brain thinks, along with things like uh, emotional dysregulation and ways that I have to figure that out. Accessibility can look like having your support team know about a potential trigger that might happen and knowing those things through your own body. Sometimes if it's a sugar thing or a triggery thing for me that my body wants to go through because something happened, you can take a sour candy or a sour something like that. It will actually help get you grounded and out of those spaces. For some, it does for me. So accessibility is really a conversation in my opinion. It is not a one size fits all. Everyone has different lived experiences and different barriers that they experience through these things. Getting my handicap placard has changed my life but it was actually very difficult to do and there were so many barriers through it and also a lot of shame I had to be able to ask and advocate for those things. And you just don't know where somebody's at with whatever is going on and however they are able to access or what they need to access because our me being medicalized changes a lot about your own autonomy and what you can or can't do in our society. And I think that that's another conversation that whether you self-analyze or you have it through medical, they are valid. That is your experience and your lived time throughout this earth that you get to decide and advocate for what those look like and not assuming what somebody really does need. So I think those are things to keep in mind. And I just keep learning because I only have my brain and my body and my things. I don't know what it's like for somebody else, even if somebody else says they have ADHD, I might be able to connect on a lot of those things, but it also might be very different how they are uh, connecting or functioning and, and moving throughout the world. So there's lots of ways we keep learning with new tech, with new abilities and things, but it is a conversation to have rather than an assumption of one another. And I'm really passionate about it. <laughs> well, and it's something that we haven't talked about for a very long time. And the thing is, a lot of those accommodations for various disabilities and non-neurotypical folks actually aid neurotypical folks in focusing and in accessing the space. Well, some people think, well, this is just for the small group of people or whatever. It really isn't. Uh, you know, simply looking at how you have a layout and making sure you have chairs accessible for different sizes of bodies and different physical limitations. I mean, a third of all adults have bad backs. So being able to move around and get comfortable and spread out is it, it's a third of your conference attendees at least. And if you're dealing with an older population, it's even more than that. Uh, using the microphone so somebody doesn't have to admit they're hard of hearing, right? And just building in the microphone to the way your presenters speak is critical. It's, it's so huge. People don't realize like, 
with our suitcases. They did not always used to have wheels on them. Mm-hmm. Guess who fought for that? Yeah. Disability rights activists. And it, how many people have wheels on their luggage now? Who wants to carry that, right? It's it's wild to me that it's like, oh, it's only for, you know, two people. Mm, I don't think you got that right. I think there's a lot of people that benefit from all of these different things. Well, and I'm I'm a bit older than you. I'll be 50 in the spring. But when I was growing up, they didn't think girls or AVFAB people could have dyslexia and dyscalculia. I was told I was lazy, I was sloppy, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't until I was in grad school that somebody finally said, well, maybe it's this. And the fact that I had been driving with L makes a left, if you put your index finger and your thumb out on your left hand, L, that's how I knew how to turn left. Somebody would tell me, I have no intrinsic sense of that. Right, same. <laughs> my my ex-wife used to tell me I was a, a homing pigeon with a magnet on its head because I was always convinced I was going home, but that compass was just spinning. But it really took until I was almost 35 before somebody said, well, maybe some of these problems are dyslexia and dyscalculia. And so when they would have adaptations for people who had that, it was like, before I knew, it was still helping me. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. And the frustration of like going through that, I don't know about you, I felt so upset because I think this is only the last mm, four years for me. That I've actually been able to be like, no, this is what's happening. This is who I am. This is how my brain makeup is. And I'm not, I guess I feel like I used to gaslight myself into things. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom, I uh, love her very much. And also uh, internalized ableism is very real. And she, I remember in school, I was suffering so much with math and they wanted to have me get special, you know, care and special courses to help me in that in elementary school. And my mom was like, no, my daughter won't go to those courses. And that was really damaging. I could have had so much, you know, support and resources through those things. But because my mom wanted to be a quote unquote normal kid, I wasn't allowed those resources. And it's wild to be in my 30s now going like, it could have been different. I could have experienced different things. And who knows? I mean, just like you said, just, you know, women or AFAB and and non-male identified people do and still do not have a lot of that access because the tests weren't done on anybody, but typically white male boys. Like that's what that was. And so we're still experiencing that now and having to advocate in so many ways, uh, whether and it's kind of any part of our bodies and how we get to exist in the world. I still do that. I'm a student. I graduate uh, with my bachelor's in sociology in May in 2024. And advocating at my local, you know, at my university is very difficult. The seats mainly don't fit my body. I have to hope that the disability student program will provide me a chair and a table in classes. Everything is not built like the that university is one of the oldest universities and they're built for men. Like that's what that was at the time and they haven't updated it. No, it's it's a thing, but it's part of creating space for our community and everyone in our community exactly. to join. So I love that that that's been your work. Uh there's like 12 other topics I want to get into, but we are coming up on our time. <laughs> we can have an entire conversation just about littles with you because we have yet to cover that on the show. Um, so if folks want to find you, if they want to take a class, if they want to follow you online, all the things, plug away. You can find me for everything under Bree Burning. It's B-R-I Burning. Um, whether that's Facebook, FetLife, I do have an underscore Bree underscore Burning uh, but those are mainly the areas that I am on. Um, if you want to come to an event that I'm speaking at, I try to post that on my FetLife specifically with links on my profile of what I'm going to, what's happening and things like that. I also promote, though, a lot of other events and things that are going on. So feel free to find me there. And if you happen to be going to an event called South Plains Leather Fest in March of 2024, I will be doing my speech for my step aside. I'll make sure to post it online as 
as well. So you have access if you're not able to be there in person, but it will be the end of my four year holding that title um, and getting to pass it on to whomever is the next international person of leather and a big celebration of it too. But that's where you can find me. Excellent. Listeners, we'll have all of those links and more in the show notes. Thank you for being on the show. It's been a wonderful conversation and good luck with the the last round of finals you will have. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you so much. And now, a moment of gratitude. My support network. Pushing through a lot of really difficult and hard things lately. I mean, I guess the last four years has been really trying on me and each and every one of them. And yet, we still find ways to show up and have hard conversations with the support that's still there. And all of my abandonment issues, they still remind me that they're not going anywhere. They'll have their boundaries. They'll let me know. And I'll have my boundaries. And that's not something I always had growing up. It was really, really difficult. So having my support network, I'm really grateful for each and every one of them. And whether it's a text message, a phone call, or a lunch, just those moments together to know that I'm really not alone in all of these things and that we will get through it. Whatever it is, is everything to me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.